Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. It's good to be with you. I'm excited to share the next installment of our series in the Gospel of Mark. Mark probably had ADDHD undiagnosed because they didn't know what it was back then, but it's the shortest gospel. It's the most action-packed gospel. There's always movement. There's the word immediately, immediately, immediately. There's people running and falling down, but people are moving with purpose and direction. It's not an accidental movement. Sometimes if you think of ADDHD, people aren't sure what to focus on, but Mark keeps bringing our focus back on Jesus. And I I know there's a football game on right now, and I'll try my best to randomly blurt out scores every couple verses, such as 21-12, Chiefs halftime. How's that? That is the score, by the way. But I will not break any more suspense from you. I'm, I'm glad you're here on a rainy Sunday. I'm glad you're here on a playoff football evening. Because tonight we're really talking about putting our eyes on eternity and what lasts instead of the things that we will never have anything to show for. My recreation and my rest is important, but that only fuels me up so I can go after gaining things that are eternal. I'm not going to have anything to show for the game other than some fellowship and enjoyment with my kids, maybe tears if I'm a diehard Bills fan. I'm being prophetic. But if I'm putting my eyes on Jesus tonight... I'm going to have something to show for it forever and ever and ever. We're going to look at a couple stories tonight. There's a long section of stories, but they have a theme that's very common. Mark 10, we're going to be looking at verses 23 till uh, pretty much the end of the chapter. So we're, we're looking at Mark 10, 23 through the end. And I'm going to do like a Netflix episode and back up just a little bit to say, when you were with us previously, just so we can see how it all flows together. Uh, But before that, I just want to pray for God to touch us. I know we prayed for uh, him to move in our city and community and to pray for hospitals and our essential workers. But I just want to pray for us to have our eyes on eternity tonight. Father, thank you for this opportunity to see into your word. We pray that your word would read us even more than we read it tonight. And Lord, we don't want to be the same. We're not just trying to fill up a schedule tonight of church activities. We're wanting to have an encounter with the living God. And we want to to go away different. So Father, start with me. Read me through this text tonight. And if there's any wicked way in me, change me so I can be pointed in the way everlasting. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that for anyone who listens to this message, either online or afterwards. Father, however they get it, I pray that you would speak to them. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So last time we were together, Jesus was talking about childlike faith and distinguishing from a faith that's earned or a faith that's just received. Because we all know kids, as cute as they are, they don't pull their weight. 
their dependence on your tax return. They're, they're costing you something, and, and they, they are the recipients of something that the Father blesses and bestows on them. And so Jesus, in, in all of the gospel accounts, calls up kids, and he's always pointing to kids. He's blessing them. He's touching them. Sometimes the disciples got angry and said, don't distract Jesus from the important stuff by bringing kids by. And Jesus actually says, no, the kids are the important thing. In fact, the kids are our mentors. The kids teach us what posture we come before God with. The disciples love to debate about who is the greatest, and we're going to get into that in a minute. They love talking about who's going to be number one, number two. They were keeping live rankings in their minds. And Jesus said, here's a kid, a 12-year-old, someone over in children's ministry right now in the clamshell. That's our mentor. If you don't change and become like him, you're going to miss the kingdom. It's not extra credit to become like kids. It's if you don't become like a kid, you miss it all. Because kids are humble. Kids only have, all they can do is receive. And they revel in time with the Lord, with their father. As kids grow up, they sort of just want the keys and an allowance. And, you know, sort of like the great Gadsby book where they wanted all of his stuff, but just not him. They wanted the party, but not the party thrower. But kids, when they're younger, they love being with their dad. They love Every time I play with Rocco, he's fast now. I mean, he doesn't get tired. I don't know where his spiritual gift is, but it's the gift of endless energy. And we'll go play tag at the beach or at the park, and it's, it's a full-on sprint for me to catch him. And when I catch him, I'm exhausted. I'm out of breath. I'm huffing and puffing. And as soon as I get him, he always looks at me and goes, do it again. Do it again, Dad. Do it again. And, and I just love how much time he wants to spend with me. Do it again. Dude, you get, a, get over a, with a group of grown-ups, and after the sermon's over, you don't really hear, do it again, preacher. <laughs> after the offering goes around, I haven't heard too many grown-ups say, pass it again. I want to give more because I just love the connection with my dad. But Jesus said, that's what childlike faith is all about. When Allegra runs up to me and I catch her, she's still light enough and young enough for me to do this. I throw her up in the air and I catch her, throw her up and catch her. And she screams again, do it again. And if I would drop her, we would be going to the hospital. It would be over for her. It would be, it would be a serious injury or death because I'm throwing her as high as I can and I'm catching her. And she has no thought for her safety, no thought for her well-being. She's completely trusting her dad with everything. And I catch her and our eyes meet. And that's how we bond because she's abandoning herself to me. And Jesus says, that's what it's all about in my kingdom. If you don't come like that, you're not going to make it in. So that's the preview setting us up for the rich young ruler. Jesus just got done exhaling that truth about childlike faith. And this rich guy, he was young. He had his whole life ahead of him. But he had great possessions, according to two of the authors. He had a crazy amount of wealth, according to one of the others. Everybody gets their own little version of the story, but the theme is there. This guy was distinguished. He probably, he, it was amazing that a rich man who, who was so sophisticated in the ancient Near Eastern culture, you never ran, because that symbolized desperation. That symbolized humiliation. Your ankles would show, and I know in Southern California, that's no big deal. We show everything here. 
But back in the ancient Near East, you couldn't even have your ankles show because you're running. It's immodest. You're being desperate. And this guy runs over to Jesus. It's that Mark action that we talked about earlier. He runs over and he falls down and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to get to 23, but I want the backstory in case you haven't been here last week or if you're like me and you need to hear things a few times to see the flow of it. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then this guy says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. It's interesting here, Jesus didn't name the first four commandments. Did you catch that? Those are the commandments against God. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make any idols. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain even if your culture does it all the time, so much so that you don't even notice it. God notices it. Take a Sabbath day. Don't just drink more Red Bull. Trust me that if you rest, I'll provide for you. Jesus could have answered with those, but instead he talked about the six that this guy thinks he did okay with. Because you can make it through life without murdering someone. You might consider it or fantasize about it. You might murder them with your words, but you can make it through your life without murdering another human. Jesus made it tougher. He said, you've heard it said that if you murder, you'll be in danger of judgment. But Jesus said this. He says, if you are angry with your brother or sister, then you're, you're committing murder in your heart. If you could cause them pain and just enjoy it for a minute, then you're guilty of murder before God. He made that harder. He didn't do that to the rich young ruler. We'll see how God got to his heart. But he could have said that and he chose not to. He could have also said adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks lustfully at another woman commits adultery or a woman that looks lustfully at a man and commits adultery. I remember reading that when I was 16, going through puberty, I hung my head. I said, Jesus, I need a savior. I can't do that. At the movies, Jesus? online, Jesus? Jesus could have gotten this guy to see his need for God several different ways. But Jesus has that gift of knowing exactly what's going on in everyone's heart and what's the best path to reach them. I don't know if I want that gift while preaching, to be able to read minds. What's he really thinking? Why is he wearing that? What's he saying? What's the chief score? <laughs> he always knows. Gotcha. Gotcha. But for this guy, Jesus zeroed in on those first four commandments, specifically the first two. You should have no other gods other than me and don't make any idols. This guy was well-dressed. That's probably one thing that stood out. He probably, while he ran, was still carrying himself with dignity. But he humbled himself. He got down on his knees and he asked this important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But isn't that an interesting question in and of itself? People who inherit don't do anything. Inheritance is a gift based on sonship or daughtership. But Jesus went with them anyway and broke down the commandments. And he could see that this guy's wealth was his God and security. And he probably made an idol out of that. So he's in trouble with the first two commandments. But Jesus decides to engage him at his heart. And this is what he says next. The guy says, teacher, I've kept all these since I was young. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. 
before you say anything hard to anybody ever in your family, in your church, particularly in an online forum. It's harder to look at people in an online forum, and therefore it's harder to love them in an online forum. Yes, it is a little social commentary. He looked at him and he loved him. He had a hard truth to say, but it wasn't because he was looking to say, gotcha. It wasn't because he was looking forward to being right. He wanted this guy to experience life to the fullest. That's what Jesus came to do. He only comes to engage our hearts to give us life to the fullest. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy that life that Jesus wants to give us. And the thief poses as Jesus. And he says, as he did in the Garden of Eden, I've come to bring life to the fullest, and Jesus comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So they're masquerading. He's at masquerading as the life giver, but all he can do, the only reason he wants to talk to you is because his final agenda, no matter how good it feels for a moment, no matter how powerful you feel, no matter how connected you might be, no matter how falsely satisfied your soul might be for just a second, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. One of my preacher friends is a fisherman. He likes to fly fish, and he says, the best way to reel in the fish is to give it some line first. So you kind of let the fish run with it. This is my sound. I stayed up late at night trying to figure out a fly fishing sound effect. So that's my best, my best shot at this. You let it go. And then when it's time to reel them in, you got the hook in the mouth, and he's all yours. So sometimes you're out there thinking you got life to the fullest. You're playing with the wrong crowd. You're engaging in stuff. You're like, see, I didn't think this was going to kill me. And look, it's not yet. I'm getting away with it. God really didn't understand what he was saying. He was really trying to rip me off. The line will get tight one day, and the devil's going to claim his due one day. But Jesus came to give us life and to give us life to the fullest. So that's his agenda for the rich young ruler. That's his agenda for the little kid. That's his agenda for the two disciples that we're going to talk about in a minute that wanted to be the greatest. That's his agenda for the blind guy named Bartimaeus on the side of the road. He wants everyone to have life to the fullest, and it can only happen through him, the life giver. If it was possible for it to happen any other way, Jesus would have advertised that too. So when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and it says he's a jealous God, in Exodus, not because he's picky and insecure and petty. He's jealous for your life and my life to the fullest. And he knows there's no other way it can happen unless you come to and through him. And so that's why he's saying, you need to give up anything that's going to keep you from getting to me. That's his agenda for us out of love. Out of love. Do we dare release those things we're clinging to that we think will give us life? so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. The devil's agenda is always to fill our hands with something else that we cling to so tightly. But in the end, we miss embracing Christ. Anything he trades us for, he wins the transaction. Guys, he can give you a supermodel, and at the end of your days, you're going to be empty and lonely, and that transaction worked great. He gave you something for a couple years. He got you forever. Easy decision for the devil. He can give you power, he can give you status, he can give you wealth through unjust means. And if he gets your soul, whatever he gave in exchange is a very easy calculation. Doesn't matter at all. He's going for your soul. So is Jesus. That's the battle. It's a battle we're all in. 
The prize is souls. That's the scoreboard we should all be checking all the time. Hey, how are the souls of the people that I care about? Oh, we just got one. Oh, we just had one fall into jeopardy. That's the scoreboard I should be checking. I don't have an update on the chief score. I'm, I'm not live streaming anything up here. I'm just preaching God's word. But that's the score we should be checking, amen? So Jesus looks at this guy, and he loves him. So the reason he's talking is because he wants this guy to have life to the fullest. Jesus has those night vision goggles where he can look at you, and he sees the live scan of everything going on in your heart instantly. Would you want that for your relationships? Maybe. Sometimes we're just called to be obedient and God's the one that sees us and he instructs us because he sees it all. But Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he says, you lack one thing. And I can kind of see this guy almost like with his notepad out saying, tell me whatever it is, whatever it is. If I just have to do more performance to earn it, then I'm just, I'm gonna write it down and I'm gonna do it. You let me know. Do I have to fast another day? Do I have to pray a certain type of prayer? Do I need to go and, and go on a pilgrimage somewhere? Is there a great rabbi I should study under? And there was, it was Jesus. Not everyone's invited to follow Jesus directly. You know that? Like the demoniac we, we talked about earlier when I preached here, he was healed and God said, Jesus said, go back to your own Decapolis, the 10 cities, and go tell, you're still talking about him, but you didn't get to personally follow him. Jesus had an invitation for this guy to personally follow him. That was a pretty big deal. This is what it says. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22 reads, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Luke said he was extremely wealthy. In this life, he had all this stuff in his hands and he couldn't let it go so that he could take hold of that which is truly life. It's interesting when I log into my Vanguard account and I check my stock portfolio, any other investors in here? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're an angel investor. You like to buy little pieces of things. Maybe you have a 401k. Maybe you don't do any of that and you've got all your money under a pillow. <laughs> but whatever you do, what are you holding on to? It's interesting, when I log into Vanguard, it says balances and holdings. Isn't that interesting? Like that's our, that's our mentality, is we're, we're holding, they, they, they are pretty honest. I'm holding it. But Jesus says, if you want to find balance in your life for now and eternity, you have to hold your holdings like this. Because everything we have belongs to who? God. Everything's on loan. Hearst's pool, no U-Haws, I heard one pastor say. We don't get to cake it with us. And Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. When I read this verse in college, I thought, Jesus is just beating this dude up. It's just too hard to follow him. How does this work? But as I've gotten older, I've realized Jesus wasn't asking this guy to settle for less. Jesus was asking this guy to upgrade his treasure. And we're going to notice that in a little bit. And your treasure, by the way, is anything that's more than you need. So if you look in your bank account, you might discover some treasure. If you look in your driveway, you might discover some treasure. 
If you look on your waistline, you might discover some treasure, more than you need. One of my New Year's resolutions is to put treasure in the right place this year, in all ways. Jesus is wanting us to have treasure that will last. He said it this way, he said, excuse me. He said, don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. If he was speaking to the modern American, he would say where 401ks crash and where coronaviruses devour markets when the bear comes out. All that stuff we're working so hard for, we don't get to keep it. So Jesus is saying, don't just be spiritual, be smart. Don't just avoid sin, avoid being stupid. If you work forever and you can't hang on to it and the tighter you squeeze, it's like grabbing big clumps of jello and it just oozes through your hands. Grab onto something that's not gonna disappear. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is actually asking this guy to upgrade his treasure. I see you've got a lot of it. I see it's important to you. I see you're accumulating. Accumulate in a way that will last forever. The Bible says, Jesus said elsewhere that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So the Bible describes our hearts like metal and our treasure is the magnet. Wherever we put our treasure, our hearts, because we're human, will be drawn there. My time, my focus, my energy, I can't control where my heart goes, but I can control where my treasure goes. I'm gonna say that again. As a person of faith or as a person of no faith, as a human, I can control where my treasure goes. I can't control where my heart goes, but eventually my heart will follow and catch up to where my treasure is. So by controlling where my treasure goes, I am eventually and indirectly controlling where my heart goes. Does that make sense? If we're invested on this world and this is all there is, Paul says, man, if Christ wasn't raised and there's no eternity, we are to be pitied among all others, above all others. We're the people hanging out in the rain on a cold Sunday night when there's a warm blanket and football on. We're so much to be pitied if everything I'm saying is just a big pipe dream. We're stupid, we're foolish. But Jesus is saying the flip side, he's saying to the rich young ruler, you're a fool. We're not supposed to call people fools. Jesus is allowed to say, don't be foolish. He says, don't be a fool and hang on to something now and trade something forever. Jim Elliott, the great missionary who flew into an island where he was killed by spears because this indigenous tribe never heard the gospel before. His wife, Elizabeth Elliott, basically evangelized this whole tribe throughout her life as a result of the sacrifice of her husband, this group came to faith. And his line is this, he is no fool or she is no fool who gives what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. We don't get to keep our lives. We don't get to keep our time. We don't get to keep our talents. But if we give them to Jesus for the gospel and for his kingdom, we actually get to keep them forever. It's a pretty good deal, right? You know, there's a website, there's several of them actually. You can type in how much you make a year and they'll tell you what percentile you are in the world as far as wealth. 
This wasn't invented by Bernie Sanders with the 1% or anything like that, but it was like the Wall Street Journal. There's some other websites you can go to. Do you know if you make $50,000 a year or more, which is right about average income for the US, middle class, that puts you in the top one percentile of the entire world. You drive two cars, look at your neighbor and say, you're filthy, stinking rich, because you have two cars. Do you have three meals a day that you're not worried about where it's coming from? King and queen. We're the richest nation that's ever been on the face of the earth. Right now, we're like number two. Uh, Saudi Arabia per capita has a little more wealth than us because of all the oil. We're the richest Christians to ever read the text that we're about to read per capita in a country, except for Saudi Arabia, and there may not be as many Christians in Saudi Arabia. I know there are some. This is an interesting text for us to look at tonight. What would Jesus say to us? What would your response be? So now we get to my assigned verse for the night, 23. Wasn't that good background? Really helpful? Gets the momentum going. The context is full now. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. This is another word that's in Mark all the time. Awestruck, amazed. They were amazed because they had read the book of Job and Job's friends beat him up every day because they assume wealth is a sign of God's favor. Done deal, period, end of discussion. If you're not wealthy, it's because you're not living right. If you are living right, then you're gonna be blessed. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but God takes care of his kids. But we're not guaranteed wealth as we follow him. If we are given more wealth, it's so that we can be stewards of it to translate it and roll it over. You talk about rolling over your IRA or your 401k when you move jobs. I'm asking you tonight, do you wanna roll over your wealth on earth into eternal riches? That's what Jesus is talking about. And he says, it's really hard for those who have wealth on earth because life's going well for us. We don't think we need anything else. We can't even envision a life that's better anywhere else. So why would we want to trade it? What if we could just do this forever? I was preaching at Coronado High School to a group of kids. I was sorry, the middle school. And, and there was this really well-off guy. Everybody on Coronado Island's pretty well-off. And they drive golf cars to class, new clothes, newest iPhone. And he's kind of talking smack in the back as I'm sharing the gospel. And I look at him and I go, hey man, doesn't seem like you're down with what I'm saying. And he goes, oh, I, I've got a pretty good life. I'm fine. I appreciated his honesty. He goes, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I said, does the life you have now excite you enough that you want to see it go on forever? And he goes, this is actually a very fascinating confession. He goes, oh no, not forever. He said, about 70 years or so, I'll be bored. <laughs> Like he's living for himself. He's trying to do what he can, but he, he thought it would work out well for 70 years. But Jesus is saying, don't ever, ever sell yourself short and dream and plan just for 70 years. Jesus's retirement plan, if he would be your consultant that you sit with, he'd say, what are you hoping to be up to in a thousand years from now? That's what he's gonna be asking. Because plan for that now. Send resources ahead now. Do you know you can send resources to heaven based on what you give to Christ now, our greatest treasure will be God and all the people we get to go with him. But we're gonna have jobs in heaven. Your greatest promotion, your greatest uh, coming into your own and your calling and career probably won't happen here. It's gonna happen there. You're not gonna be around a bunch of chubby babies on clouds strumming harps. 
You're going to be in a perfect city where God comes to reign and you're going to have a job description forever. And what you do with your treasure here will directly influence what you get to be in charge of there. And there's going to be a lot of upside down switches. We're going to read about that in a minute. So this man hangs his, hangs his head. He goes away sorrow because he's colorful because he has great wealth. Jesus says it's really difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed because Father Abraham was a very wealthy man, herds. He had lots of wives. He had a lot of clothing and tents and everything. And in the Hebrew culture, wealth was a sign of God's favor. End of discussion. There was an idea of getting wealth unjustly but also there was an idea that wealth is a sign of God's favor. So the wealthy weren't suspect. The wealthy were of the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So now the disciples are exceedingly astonished. Jesus is describing something that's impossible. What? Jesus, how? What are you talking about? And, and there's lots of different interpretations of this idea. Some people view the camel with two humps that's at the nativity scene, even though that's two years early because the kings came when Jesus was two. But picture a camel from the nature show or the zoo. Is the zoo open now? I don't know, but, but the gorillas have COVID. So hopefully the camels at the zoo won't catch COVID. But imagine this huge beast with two humps that can go for months at least a month in the desert without water because it's a long distance track animal going through the eye of a needle. And, and you can imagine a sewing needle. That would be impossible. Some scholars say that there's an entrance to the cities that's shaped like an eye. And the, the phrase is an eye of a needle to describe this very narrow and low passageway. And the only way the camel, who's usually loaded up with packs because he's on long trips in the desert, you have to take everything off of the camel and strip it down. And then it has to come in on its knees with all of its possessions abandoned and crawl through the entrance. Some people say that describes coming into the kingdom. I've heard one scholar say Kamal, and I don't, I don't go for this, but he says Kamal was actually describing thick rope, but you look up the, the Greek and it's, it's camel. But Kamal, he was saying, was thick rope, and, and a thick rope has to be unwound before you put it through a thread in a, in a needle. But all three of those tell us the same thing. It's impossible for this to happen without God. And I told you, we're all dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich listening to this sermon tonight, right? On a global scale, sorry. But that's where Jesus is coming to us going, what are you hanging on to? What, and I'm putting myself in that category too. What are you hanging on to? Are you willing to let Christ empty you of everything and come in on your knees? The disciples all said, who then can be saved? This is impossible, right, Jesus? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but with God, it is not impossible. For all things, this is another echoing theme that Pastor Sean preached on here a couple nights ago on Sunday. All things are possible with God. Sick people can be healed. Rich people can discover true riches. That's how I'm gonna say it. Rich people can roll over their earthly wealth for eternal wealth. All things are possible with God. And then Peter always likes to speak up for the group. 
Usually he says something helpful. This time he did. See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He said, follow me. They dropped their nets. I talked about this last time I preached here. They were business leaders. They had a career. They had a means of income. They had a means of production. They dropped their nets. They left the fishing business. Peter owned a house. He wasn't just a nomadic fisherman. He was making enough of a living to leave his house to follow Jesus. So Peter's like, we saw the, the rich dude hang his head and walk away, but we have done what you asked. We did give up everything. Jesus, what will there be for us? Not an unfair question. And then Jesus said this, truly, this is verse 29. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, including persecutions, so you have to have it all. Sometimes at the Christian bookstore, they, they say, hey, lands and family and 100 time return. That sounds pretty good. Let's write a book. And persecutions. Oh, snap. In this age and the age to come. Matthew's the only writer of the gospel that says there's only rewards 100 fold in the next life. Mark and Luke both say both. But I think we have to really unpack what that means. When they say, you get a new family, I think that's the family of God. Because sometimes you leave brothers and sisters and mothers who don't understand what you're doing or what you're talking about, and you get a new family because you join a church like New Vision. And you're loved and accepted, not for where you came from, but for who you are. And that becomes your riches. Remember, Jesus was out preaching, and his mother, Mary. Mary the one that we look up to and rightly revere shows up with a couple of his brothers and says, hey, Jesus, you've lost your mind. You need to come home with us now. And they said, your mother and brothers are out there. They'd be like Jesus is in mid-sermon like this. And somebody comes in and says, hey, um, they're out there wanting you to shut up and go with them. And Jesus said, what? My brothers and my mother is anyone who hears the word of God and does it. You get a new family. I'm not saying reject your family. I'm saying... Don't feel bad if your family's rejected you because you get a new family. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for an opportunity to be salt and light. But God's saying in this life and the life to come, you're gonna get a hundred time return on anybody that, I want you to hear this, any relationship that you've lost because of Jesus, he's promising you a hundred times return now and forever in different equally or better quality relationships. You just have to trust him to bring those to you. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? A new relationship that's just as close as a mother, father, spouse that you may have lost because of Jesus. He's keeping track. He doesn't just keep track of your sins unless he's forgiven them. Then he separated them from east is from west. He's keeping track of everything you've given up to follow him. And at the end of the day, there's gonna be two judgments. There's the heaven hell judgment in front of the great white throne. I'm an evangelist. I don't want people to get that wrong. I'm also a mobilizer of the church. There's a Bema seat coming where Jesus settles accounts with us and everything we've given up for him, he'll return a hundredfold. Wow. 
It's a pretty good, if you're an investor, that sounds pretty good, right? Where do you get 100 times return right now? I recently bought a stock newsletter and spent a lot of money to get this guy to give me 20 stocks to buy, and, and they've been doing really well. Some are up 25%, some are up 50%, some are up 100%. A 100% means they've doubled, so that's times two. I don't have any stocks that are up 100 times. I'd love to find them. You give up one relationship, you get 100 better. Whatever God takes away, he's going to give you more. But he gets to define what true wealth and success looks like. We don't. We get in trouble if we say, God, give me life to the fullest, and then we stipulate exactly what life to the fullest has to look like for us. We need to trust him because over time, he'll reveal more and more of his plan for us. And then in the end, we inherit eternal life. Not only do you get 100% return, you're getting 100% return on stuff you don't get to keep anyway. Think about that. Let that sink in for real. It's not just 100 times return. What you've got is going to be worthless if you don't trade it in sometime. When the Confederacy was wrapping up and it was pretty clear that the North had won the war, there were Confederates who were really savvy and, and they converted their money from the Confederate currency to U.S. dollars because they knew there's a time coming when what they have won't be worth anything if they don't trade it in. So Jesus is saying, it's not just 100 times return, ROI. What you've got now is not going to be worth anything if you don't act on it within a certain time frame. Do it now while there's still time. There's the urgency of Mark with this message because we've all got wealth right now sort of like an ice cube, it's melting. We've got to send it somewhere that's going to last where it can be converted and rolled over or else we don't have it anymore anyway. We are no fool if we give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Jesus said this, many who are last will be first and many who are first will be last. Be nice to each other. Because that homeless person you blow past every day or that bell person at work, they might be running something really important forever and ever. You just can't tell right now. Some of the pastors that have the nice mansions now, they've spent it all here and they're going to be in heaven, but you'll be surprised at the hierarchy in heaven. You'll be surprised who's in charge of a lot and who's in charge of a little. Some people will do well in both places because their treasure's in the right spot. That's my goal. I want to be faithful here so I can be faithful there. But I'll endorse stuff here because I know in the end, God's going to settle all accounts very accurately. Dotting every I, crossing every T. He's watching. He sees everything. Many who are last will be first. Many who are first will be last. He doesn't say everybody. He just says there'll be a lot of surprises on judgment day. Live in such a way that you don't have to be ashamed. Live in such a way that Jesus can trust you with more. If you're waiting for the big assignment to be faithful, guess what? We actually build mountains based on little rocks and opportunities of faithfulness. So if we blow all of those off, we won't ever get the mountain that we think we're going to actually be faithful with. Oh, when the big mountain comes, then I'll get in shape, then I'll be faithful, then I'll take it seriously, then I'll go all in. But we don't realize every day, every hour, every minute, we have a choice between watching another Netflix episode and praying for someone's salvation forever. 
One 30-minute investment I'll never see again. The other one I'll see forever and ever and ever and ever. But there's another episode starting in 15 seconds. I've got to decide again. Shoot. So frustrating being a human tied to earth. Verse 32. While they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. And again, they were amazed. You know why? Because Jesus says, I'm going to die. They're going to beat me down. They're going to spit on me. They're going to strip me down. They're going to make fun of me. And they're going to humiliate me. But he's walking resolutely. Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. The Bible says very early in the morning, he got up right away to be obedient. Jesus knew he was going to be sacrificed. And right away, he's walking out in front. They're the ones holding back and afraid. And Jesus is unapologetically, unafraid, walking to his death. Not because he liked to die. The Bible says he despised the cross, scorned its shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what the joy set before him was? In part, it was you and me. I'll get Nate Landis forever if I just keep walking to Jerusalem. I'll be with Ryan forever if I just keep walking to Jerusalem. The idea of being on the cross was less painful than the idea of being apart from us for all eternity. So he kept walking faster and faster to his death. They're amazed. They followed him afraid. And then taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I'm going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Since no one had ever risen from the dead before, except for Lazarus and a couple other people that they had healed, it still wasn't normal enough for them to get what he was saying. They didn't understand that part. I think they were just thinking, man, this guy I left everything for is going to go die? I just got screwed. Excuse the French. I just left everything for the dude that's just going to throw it all away? I thought he was becoming king. He will. I thought he was going to ruin reign. He will. I thought he was going to end oppression. He will. I thought he was going to make everything right. He will. But he's not going to make everything right if it's not perfect first. Think about that. When, when in, this is an important point. In the Garden of Eden, you ever wonder why the tree of life was locked away for Adam and Eve after they had sinned? It was not because God was tyrannical. It was because he was merciful. He didn't want them to live forever in a fallen, depraved state that was falling far short of what he had envisioned and created them to do and be. He wanted them, if they were going to live forever, to be perfect as he intended for them. And that's why he waited to make them perfect. Same thing's true with society. He's not going to let it go on forever until the kingdom of God comes from heaven to earth. And then he'll reign forever when it's worth preserving. You don't keep something going forever unless it's worth keeping around forever. So we all get new bodies. We all get a new heaven and a new earth to enjoy. Three days later, he will rise again. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. They had heard Peter say, we, you know, can you hear the competition in these guys? Peter says, we've left everything. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, a hundredfold return. But James and John go, hmm, how could we improve on a hundredfold return? I know. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he said, so this is, remember Solomon? 
God asked Solomon, I'll do whatever you ask. And it's better when God asks you. Because God's initiating that. And Solomon asked for what? Wisdom. Wisdom to lead your people. And then he got all the other things you would think to ask for as a fringe benefit because he found the main thing first. Sometimes you pick the number one thing, you get two, three, four, five, six, and seven. But if you make two, three, four, number one, you lose everything. Isn't that interesting? It's all or nothing. You have to identify the true value. So they come up and they said, she said, what do you want me to do for, for you? And they said this. In one translation, his mom, their mom asked for them. And then, like, talk about how to tick off your, your, your comrades, right? You're asking to be the greatest, and you sent your mom to do it. Well, if you want to be the greatest, step up to the plate and ask yourself. In this translation, they did. In this, not translation, this account, this epistle. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? Because Jesus is headed where? Jerusalem to die, to be tortured by professional torturers. The Romans stayed up late at night and said, man, we don't have guns yet, haven't invented those, so we can't kill people that way. Arrows are too quick. Swords are kind of boring and efficient. What if we strap someone to a piece of wood and stretch them out? That would really hurt. And if we filleted their back like hamburger ahead of time, then their back could be rubbing up against the wood. And you know when you die on the cross, it's not from lack of blood, you die from what? Anybody know? Suffocation. The word excruciating was actually invented to talk about the act of, of pushing up. You get a little block. Every breath you take, you have to push up. And you're hanging by your wrists and your feet are nailed in. It's cruel. It's the cruelest way to die, I could imagine. And Jesus is power walking towards it because he knows he gets you and me. Wow. I hope you go home and be like, thanks, Jesus. Look how much you meant, look how much I meant to you. And he didn't even know. I guess you could say in his foreknowledge he knew, but he also knew some people would reject him. But he was willing to go forward for those that would see what's really happening and accept him. So they're all walking up there and, and Jesus is like, dude, do you want to be tortured like me? You don't know what you're asking, James and John. Do you want to be baptized with the baptism of me? It's, it's easy sometimes when, when I'm not a biker, but I have a, a friend who's a biker and he says that as you're going along and you've got a bunch of guys in a line and more high-end biking, if it's competitive, somebody's breaking the force of the wind and then they switch out. And, and he said that it's easy to just be riding along and going, man, that dude's on the front, he's a slacker. Why isn't he picking up the pace? I think we could add a couple miles per hour. And then he said, that guy pulls out. And then when you're up and you feel the full force of the wind, whoa, I'm amazed he was able to go that fast at all. So Jesus is like, once you're in the front, once you're really in the lead, once you've gone through and tasted what I've gone through, you, you don't know what you're asking until you've done that. There's more suffering than you realize, but you are going to get what you asked for. But to sit and reign and rule at my right and my left, that's not for me to grant. That's for, the Bible says in the next verse, the people that it was prepared for by my father. Someone else is going to suffer a lot and someone else is going to be glorified as well. But that's up to God the Father. But we know James, according to church tradition, we don't know this in the Bible, people think he was sold in two. And John was exiled to the island of Patmos and he died a lonely death. 
social distancing before it was cool for many, many years on the island of Patmos. That's where the book of Revelation came. These guys did die a death similar to Christ. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was lonely and suffering physical and emotional pain. John and James tasted that. But in the end, Jesus really just wanted them to be like a child. Receiving the gift of grace. Receiving the inheritance you can't work for or earn. See the parallel between the rich young ruler and here? Jesus says that the Gentiles like to lord it over those they lead. This is verse 42. And they're great at that. The great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be that way among you. Whoever is the greatest among you must be your servant. So you want to be first, become last. Because remember, it's going to probably be flipped upside down. I heard one preacher say, anytime the devil lies to you, you can just flip it upside down. Anytime God tells you the truth, the devil will try to flip it upside down. If you want to be great in the kingdom, learn to be the servant. If you want to be on top, learn to be the child. It takes discipline. The more mature I get in faith, the more childlike my faith gets. The more dependent I become. The more humble I become. I'm starting to grow in childlikeness and servanthood, and that's the route to go up. Not because up is my end goal. Jesus is my end goal. But he's promised to reward us as a fringe benefit because he's the one that says that. He's the one that makes that offer, not us. We're not asking him for rewards. He's saying, for your treasure will lead your heart to the place that you'll spend eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. So he says, if you want to be great, learn to be the servant of all. The son of man who was in charge of everything. He spoke the world into existence. He kept it going. Who knows for how long before creation happened. He had the perfect relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. He came not to be served. Sorry, not to, yes, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the one who could have said, kiss my rings, was born in a manger. The one who could have been presiding over a palace had no place to lay his head. The one who was, so Jesus was the greatest and he showed us that the greatest can be the least for a season. And then it flips upside down again. Jesus now is back ruling and reigning. He traded in his crown of thorns for a crown of gold and he did sit down at the right hand of God. He was the greatest, became like the least because he wanted to get us back. Isn't that amazing? He gave up everything for you and me. Before he suffered, he gave up everything. It wasn't just the suffering of the cross. It was coming. But in Isaiah, it says he was kind of ordinary looking because they wanted the power of his words to be the attraction, the spirit of God inside him. The anointing of the Lord was drawing, not his facial recognition. He didn't have Photoshop or a way to touch up any trouble spots. He became a servant, born in a barn, rejected by people. The religious establishment didn't want him. He was buried in a borrowed grave. He knew that wasn't his final resting place, so it really didn't matter. Why pay a down payment or a big investment for something you're only spending three days in? It's actually pretty smart of him, wasn't it? But he became less because he was going to take us to a place that was greater. Now we come to the last story, and they're all related. 
They get to Jericho. Jericho's on the way to Jerusalem. This is verse 46. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. He was well-known enough they knew who his dad was. He was a, a beggar that would have been there long enough that people knew some family background. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you imagine how desperate? Because sometimes pastors read it, it sounds so pious. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know why my religious voice is British, but, but this would have been a desperate cry. This would have been his one time in his life that Jesus was going to walk right in front of him. This was the only shot he got. He's blind. He can't go find him. Nobody else is going to lead him there. He's not deaf. He's heard the stories of Jesus healing other people. He's heard about demons submitting to him. He's heard about this guy who's shaking the world upside down with no social media and made it all the way around because people still talked. And this guy's there and he's yelling out, Jesus, son of David, the prophecy is true. You're the anointed one. You are the king that's going to reign. This dude's blind, but he can see Jesus better than the crowd can see Jesus. He knows who he is. He can see the calling, and he knows this is the Messiah that's come, and he's going to walk past me at my begging station. I don't know if he heard about Jesus taking the least and making them the greatest, but I'm sure blind Bartimaeus begging along the side of the road felt like the least. He was poor and he was blind. And if you have a physical handicap, the Jews also thought that was because of your sin. So he's dirt poor and he's blind. Jesus is walking by and he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. In the Greek, it says scolded or, or like sternly rebuked him. It would have been like, shut up, Bart. The rabbi's walking by. Okay? How dare you? He's too important for you. He's busy. He's got places to go. That kind of shame publicly would have shut a lot of us up, right? But he yells out even louder. All the more, son of David, have mercy on me. If Jesus stops, it doesn't matter how much scolding he got. If he's agreed upon by Jesus, it doesn't matter the criticism of everybody else. When I was a youth pastor at a Presbyterian church, I had a kid in my youth group who had a medical condition where he could not tell what other people thought of him. It was like a social, emotional adjustment issue. It was kind of a gift if you're going through junior high and you don't know what people think of you. And when he would worship, he was the, all the other kids in the youth group are like looking right, looking left, wondering what everyone, is, is so-and-so raising their hands? Is this person dancing? Is this person focused or texting? But this guy, all he could focus on was what Jesus thought of him. And he danced freely. He, this was like Presbyterian church camp, right? Not a lot of dancers. 
But this kid would dance and just with his whole heart worship. And, and he was crying out with his body about how free he was and how much he wanted Jesus. And that's blind Bartimaeus in this moment. He couldn't see anyone else except Jesus. Sometimes it's a gift to be blind to the opinions of others so that you can keep your eyes on Jesus. Sometimes I wish I had social media blinders so I could only keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm glad I'm half deaf. It's a real gift. I'm not just saying that because I have young children in the home that cry at night. I'm saying that because the critics are harder to hear and I can hear the voice of Jesus. It's better to be deaf to the world or blind to the world if it helps you focus on Jesus. He calls out all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He's calling you. All of a sudden, I think they were like, oh, Bart might actually get the royal treatment. They started respecting him a little more. Throwing off his cloak, he was like camped out at the begging station. Throws off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So he springs and runs to Jesus just as the rich man ran over and bowed down to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? That's a repeating question here, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? What do, how would you answer that question tonight? What do you want Jesus to do for you? And, and do you have in mind something that's going to last forever? Or do you have something in mind that's going to just be quick? that you won't have to show forever. Ask wisely. Ask with an eye on eternity. And he says this, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So that means he probably was able to see before, lost his sight and wanted it back. So he knew what he was missing. Some other blind people Jesus healed had never seen before. So they didn't know what they were missing. This guy had seen it and lost it. That's probably harder and worse, don't you think? because you don't just have your imagination. You would actually know what you're missing. I want to recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The faith that let you see me, even though you were blind, you knew I was the Messiah, the son of God prophesied, who was in the line of David. And you knew that I had the ability to fix your eyes, even though nobody else could fix your situation. That's faith, right? In Hebrews it says that it's impossible to please God without faith. And faith is described as being confident of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's also described this way. It says that to have faith, we have to know that God exists, number one. And number two, we have to believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Part of fasting is earnestness. I'm more hungry for Jesus than meatballs. I'm more hungry for eternal life than what's going to fuel my body for the next 24 hours. I'm thinking about the next 24 billion years and not the next week where I have to be hungry. Do you know something you're going to pray for in the next week will change somebody's forever? And you'll have 24 billion years to go, man, I'm glad I gave up cheesesteak. 
I'm more hungry for the, Jesus had to temporarily suffer on the cross because Manny was glad he did that because he got me and you. He sat down after temporary suffering to enjoy eternal rewards. Think about that. It's a pretty smart move. Some of us trade eternal rewards and eternal life for just a minute of not suffering. Esau traded his whole birthright for some lentil soup. Those better have been really good lentils, Esau. I hope they tasted great. Because you traded everything for that. That sexual pleasure, I hope it felt really good. Because you traded your soul for one experience in one short period of time forever. You can be forgiven, but you got to get back to Jesus. Don't trade eternity for short pleasure. That's, that's the wager that the devil will get you on. When Jesus was in the wilderness, give up your eternal reign forever and ever and bow down and worship the God of this age. Give up the word of God for bread for this moment. Be reckless with your power Throw yourself off a building, but you can command legions of angels anytime. Why would you settle for one event when it's frivolous? Don't give up momentary, don't, don't accept momentary pleasure that costs you eternity. The devil wins with that transaction every time. I said that at the beginning. He's happy to trade you anything for your soul. Because whatever he gives you is going to rust, destroy, get stolen. It's going to wear out. If it's popularity, someone else will get more popular. Someone else will get faster, cuter, better, whatever. He'll give you that and he'll get you forever. If he can get your dreams, he'll do anything. He'll trade you anything for your dreams. Because your dreams, if they're God-given, are your ability to affect others and have them come into eternity. Go your way, Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, here's that word again, immediately. Mark doesn't waste any time. Immediately. Sometimes Jesus healed and it was gradual. I see trees walking around. No, wait, they're people. And then Jesus rubbed more mud on the blind guy's eyes. This guy, Jesus didn't even touch him. And he was immediately healed. He recovered his sight that he lost earlier in life and he followed him on the way. The rich man went away sad, hanging his head. This poor man was the guy who could really see. The rich guy thought he could really see what was valuable and what would last forever. But he was hanging on to riches he's not gonna keep. He could have given them away for a hundredfold return forever and ever. But this blind guy, he could see who Jesus was. Spiritual sight's more important than physical sight. Every time. So immediately, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Because everybody in this story responded. One guy got up and was healed. Another guy went away sad. The disciples who asked to be first and second went away and got rebuked by their homeboys. <laughs> there was a response for every encounter with Jesus. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if this isn't for you, I don't want to make you do something that you feel forced to do, but just be quiet. If you're comfortable closing your eyes, uh, I want to just have a moment with you and God. 
got two invitations tonight. One is if you've never recognized Jesus as the promised one, predicted for hundreds and hundreds of years that he would come to save us from our sins, who gave up his life for us, not because he owed it to us, it was because there was no other way to get us forever. He didn't want us to pay for our sins. He didn't want us to be separated from God forever and ever in hell. Jesus talks about hell in this book a lot. It's real. And it had to be bad if he was willing to go through what he went through to save us from it. And he must have really had something good in store for us if he was willing to go through that suffering for a minute to get forever with you and me. If you've never accepted that moment and cried out, just like this blind guy, Jesus, son of David, you're the prophesied one. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I need to be forgiven. Sin is missing the mark. Sin's being less than what God has called us and created us to be. Measuring us against our perfect version of ourselves, we all fall short. Measuring us against Jesus, we all fall short. Measuring us against the law, the Ten Commandments, we all fall short. But Jesus was the perfect one for you and me. Just as blind Bartimaeus was granted sight, Jesus can grant us a perfect relationship with his Father again. He can restore that relationship, just as he can restore sight. If you've never asked him for that before, I just want to invite you to look up at me. This is between you and God. You can close your, head, close your eyes again, and you can pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you're real. I believe that you reward those who earnestly seek you. Please forgive me of my sins. Please wash me and make me new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me your strength to show others how to follow you. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.